Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, uh, you know, we had a New York City mayoral primary uh, last night. We'll talk about that a little later. Uh, but um, I don't know if you guys know this, but democracy apparently came to an end yesterday when, uh, in the words of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a minority of 50 votes in the Senate. I, I don't know if you are aware that there are 100 senators and the Republicans have 50 are represent are fifty of them, and Democrats are fifty of them. And according to Alexander Ocasio Cortez, Republicans therefore constitute a minority of the senators who uh, voted against uh, this voting rights bill or whatever you want to call it, voting access, voting, voting schmoding bill, and therefore the minority <clears throat> has control of the Senate, and this is, you know, anti-democratic. Um, of course, the only reason Democrats control the levers of power in the Senate is that uh, there is a tie and the vice president serving in the vice president's constitutional capacity as president of the Senate can break a tie. Therefore, under these conditions of total parity, Democrats control have the institutional control of the majority in the Senate, though they do not, in fact, possess a majority in the Senate. This is how this conversation has now degenerated over time, is that people are taking a 50-50 split, asserting that this represents a Democratic majority, and asserting that any effort to retard the Democrats' ambitions in the Senate constitute an attack of a minority on the majority. So uh, that's point one that I would like to discuss is this alchemy according to which a, a political circumstance indicates that neither party has the whip hand in Washington in the legislative branch as Democrats have a five-seat majority in the House of Representatives, which of course has 435 seats and therefore has a majority that con- is about a little more than 1% or something like that of the actual margin of whatever but a five seat majority which they could lose before the 2022 election simply by dint of the fact that people die or retire or get another job and there are special elections and all of that so they barely have a majority in the House, and they do not have a majority in the Senate. And somehow, Democratic and wild Democratic ambitions are being retarded by an evil min- minority that uh, should not have the right to not to to express its opinion through the simple way that parties express their opinion, which is either in supporting. Or opposing legislation, and when when you oppose it, doing what you can to block its passage. Okay, but there's two. So the to the first part about Ocasio Cortez and her um, misunderstanding of civics, I was kind of relieved that there is someone who's and worse math. at math. I, I was and just going to say oh, there's sorry. someone yes. worse at math than we are, and it's AOC. But 
I do think they've painted, you know, the progressive wing in particular has painted themselves into a corner over and over again with this piece of legislation. It was never all that popular, even among its own members. It goes way too far, but they spoke of it as the opponents being um, embracers of Jim Crow era tactics. Jim Crow, Jim Crow, Jim Crow. Even the president was talking this way. They talked about Jim Crow. They made it impossible now that there's an effort to have some compromise on things like voter ID to actually have that conversation in good faith, because how, how do you look at the, the Democratic senators who are now saying, ah, OK, maybe we're all right with voter ID and, and the and the activists like Stacey Abrams who say, well, maybe we can compromise on that. That two weeks ago was a Jim Crow era tactic. Like you can't the polarization of the language talking about this bill, about voter suppression, about Jim Crow has made it very difficult to reach any compromise. And no wonder. And, and people like AOC are happy to take the loss as a sign of their activist purity, I think. Well, I think that we could kind of dwell on that voter ID thing briefly, because it sort of underlines the extent to which Democrats have convinced themselves of a series of lies, a series of lies about voter ID laws. Um, some of them have excessive provisions, which are worthy of criticism, but not to the extent <clears throat> that they have been criticized. Especially after 2020, a lot of these bills in places like Georgia and Texas were designed to codify extensions, expansions of the franchise that were uh, brought as emergency measures during the pandemic and that they want to keep in place. Now, there are some provisions like in Texas, uh, this bill that would have limited access to the polls before one p.m. on Sunday, which was thought to be an attack on churchgoers. <laughs> I think that's uh, maybe an overwrought criticism, but it's certainly politically maladroit, and that's worthy of criticism. Otherwise, it was designed to extend and to expand access to the polls, even beyond that which is allowed in northeastern states. And this voter ID thing is indicative of this. So Manchin's compromise was, oh, let's throw the voter ID thing out. Voter ID is really popular anyway. It's not a big deal. And then people like Stacey Abrams lent their imprimatur to it. Like they were just, you know, <clears throat> finally conceding this. And it wasn't even a concession, according to her apologist, because in her book, she said, nah, she's always for voter ID, right? She doesn't like the restrictive kind, which is paring back the sort of stuff that allowed you access to the ballot in the first place. Now, as I recall, when we had these debates over the so-called restrictive voter IDs that were being pared back by evil Republicans, it was stuff like college IDs that allowed you access to the polling place, which were not state issued which could have been given to just about anybody, which could have been given to out-of-state uh, people, which could have been given to out of uh, non-citizens. Um, and they, they, the problem with that was that they didn't allow state school IDs, or rather school IDs, not state school IDs, school IDs. But they did allow gun licenses as a means to demonstrate your um, your citizenship in the state and you know your residency. And this was evil because guns are evil. But st gun licenses are state-issued. So again... When you get down to the practical effect of these laws, the practical objections, they're all predicated on a lot of um, misapprehensions that are deliberately um, uh, preserved in order to ensure that this debate isn't settled. They like the tension. They like the misapprehension. The misapprehension serves them politically. And <clears throat> their compromise on this issue is just nonsense. They're just merely acknowledging reality because reality has become politically convenient. Okay, so we have an interesting uh, debate here between Christine and Noah, I think, which is that Christine is saying that ideologically, theoretically, uh, Democrats have, um, have, have put themselves in a, in a, in a box because um, they're asserting things about which compromise uh, would be tantamount to a kind of um, 
a betrayal of fundamental democratic values. And Noah is saying that Democrats know uh, or, you know, Democrats are are playing with fire deliberately uh, in order to create a continuing controversy. I don't know where I come down on either of these. I, I think that both of them in different ways are are correct at different moments um which is to say that uh if we want to talk about not the expansion of the franchise but the question of whether or not uh voting should be as easy as possible uh it's very hard to make an argument that you shouldn't make voting easy or easier very hard. Like, why shouldn't voting be easy? Why why should voting be like going cl- the classic line, though? I don't think this is really true anymore. This is like a cliche that shows my age. Like, why should voting be like going to the DMV? It shouldn't be like going to the DMV. You should be able to walk in, walk out. There should be a lot of polling places. They should be everywhere and and all of that, right? That there, there's It's hard to make an argument, procedural argument, to know. We want this to be onerous, difficult, and, you know, take up a lot of your time and be a pain, right? So uh, that, I think, is something about which everybody can can agree, and that when people do throw up restrictions or complaints about that stuff, you then have to start questioning their, their goodwill and their bona fides, that they are worried, particularly in certain neighborhoods and certain areas, that uh, easier, you know, easier access will mean higher turnout. Will mean it's bad for them in the, you know, in the elections that they can see coming. So that's rural people trying to uh, lower the number of vote polling places in, you know, in 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 high density urban neighborhoods where, of course, if you have way more polling places, theoretically you could have a higher turnout, and those will tend to be democratic and all of that. Okay. Uh, point to the Democrats or the left, however you want to put it. Voter ID is a point in the other direction, right? Because the reason that people are concerned about voter ID has to do not with high turnout elections, but low turnout elections. The reason that you worry about fraud, despite the fact that we're having this ridiculous conversation about fraud in the presidential election, is not when, you know... uh, 150 million people vote or however many people million people voted in in 2020 it's when you have an election that is decided by three or four hundred votes about of which there appear to be an increasing number and when they're and they're decided by three or four hundred votes and turnout is low then you can see where fraud plays a determinative role in, in in all kinds of places. And voter ID is the easiest and simplest and cleanest way simply to prevent fraud. That is a picture and you're in, right? And in a lot of places, voter ID has been blocked not by Republicans or whatever, but by whoever is in power or whatever machine is in power because they figured out a way to get, you know, this kind of in in case of emergency, they can sort of shove six or seven hundred votes into certain precincts in certain places without anybody looking too closely and kind of tilt the balance in elections you ne- for things you never even heard of, you know, town selectmen and stuff like people who then have 
effects on contracts and city contracts or town <laughs> contracts or whatever. Yeah, no, you're very charitable, and I wish I could be such um, so charitable, but I'm I'm just disinclined to be so because we we've, we've been hearing about this <clears throat> this voter suppression refrain for so long. For example, in 2019, the New York Times, <clears throat> you know tried to mobilize the troops against a Texas bill that was designed to uh, collapse a loophole in the law that allowed Democrats to take advantage of those very same, very low turnout elections. There was an available tool that Texas Democrats used very to their, to their advantage to influence bond elections and school board elections that allowed for one day pop-up polling. This one day pop-up polling would show up in front of a senior center where um, a lot of Democratic votes were known to be. And they would influence those very same elections you're talking about, low-level elections. They were designed to be very confusing. They were designed to be very low turnout. And they were designed to get Democrats elected. And Democrats had no problem with that sort of thing. And to shut that down and make it a much more uniform, predictable process, that was an assault on the franchise. It's always an assault on the franchise. Whenever Democrats want want to use a tool that gets Democrats elected, it is pure, raw will to power politics. Okay, fine. You know what? I, I'm not I, honestly. I'm not going to object to that. All I'm all I'm saying is that is that um, in the case of say, how many polling places there are, where they are, you know how how many drop boxes there are, and stuff like that. So, but you are making an only... argument. Go ahead. Sorry, but John. There is a. I mean, just I think it's a, a like a sort of kind of systematic truth though that um, the higher turnout. Um, the more opportunity there is for fraud, although the less consequential that fraud would be um, just because there's, there's more noise in the system uh, when you have more, more participation. Look, fair enough. And you know, that's, uh, that's not a, that's not a reason no. to, to, right. you know, to restrict vote. To, to no, I mean, vote. you know, in 2000, when we had, you know, when we sort of had the real, the, you know, the sort of the, the, the mother of all, electoral complications in Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, polling experts unguardedly told various people that it's like, well, you know, in, in voting, when you have these kinds of numbers, you know, there's like a 1% margin of error in actual tabulations or whatever people get things wrong. I mean, there's like a 1% margin of error. And suddenly people are like, what do you mean there's a 1% margin of error in voting? Like, a lot of elections are decided by 1% or less. Are you saying that we people are getting elected or chosen or whatever and we don't know we don't actually know that they got elected? Like this is terrible. This is a this is a horror monstrosity. But and, and so um it, people got conscious of this for the first time. It's one of the reasons that voter rights some of this stuff really started to happen. And then we have a couple of other cases and these are democratic cases. Uh, precincts in Philadelphia in the Philadelphia mayor's race in the year 2000, where 120 or 130 percent of the actual registered voters voted. So we know there were there there were fraud in these precincts because the number of people who actually lived there who could vote uh, was lower than the number of people who cast ballots. And then you got weird things. You got weird stuff like the Minnesota Senate race between Al Franken and Norm Coleman, which took six months to decide and ended up being decided because somebody suddenly found, this is true, 350 ballots in the trunk of a car. And uh, Norm Coleman could have contested that election forever, and he just lost heart. 
and ran out of ran out of emotional gas to keep this going forever. And obviously, Democrats had an enormous majority in the Senate anyway because it was the it was Obama year, I think, if I have this right. And so, what was the point? Like, it was there was no point in him even being in the Senate, and so he and so he left. So we have cases of voter fraud, we have cases of ballot fraud making major decisions, and we have this institutional fact that elections are not pure and pristine. Those counts historically have to be viewed with a certain, the only real way to win something without any question is to win it with a margin large enough that you don't create these kinds of um, confusions. But I'm struck, John, by the discussion you're having about the details and the kind of policy changes that could be made that could make elections uh, more transparently fair and and get rid of those last bits of corruption that, that are still in the system. That's not that is the way we used to talk about this even a few years ago. But I've really been struck in the last few months about the way that the proponents of HR1 discuss this bill. And I want to read, and it's not just the people who are pushing the legislation, it's their enablers in the media. I want to read you something uh, that Yamichi Alcindor, the the PBS's correspondent, um, said on, uh, I think on MSNBC last night. She said, this is going to be a debate about whether or not we want America to be the place that the founders, flawed as they may have been, that the founders wanted it to be. That is not the language of let's get rid of fraud at at polling precincts in places like Philadelphia. That is the language of the moral high ground. And they will not see that language, even as a lot of the complications of their legislation show that people, even on their own side, don't support everything in that bill. That is a very important point. And and I, I do come down on this. Hearing these people say, you know, this is the end of our democracy or our democracy is being destroyed. I, I thought I heard all of those people saying for the last year that our democracy was already at an end and, or, and had already been destroyed. Not only had been destroyed from the get-go and was born in evil and sin, I was unaware that they were so committed to the glories of our democratic system that Republican evil Republicans are now seeking to somehow uh, control and, and retract. I'm thrilled by this display of patriotic sentiment about how well our institutions have been working and how now we're somehow destroying those, those institutions. Wow. You know, it's like a, it's like a DAR convention over in here Uh suddenly. Um, You know what else is interesting about that quote? Um, It it points to the fact that, and I think it's Trump that, let let the um, Democrats and liberals do this now generally on every issue. It points to the fact that they can make every single issue about if whether or not we are a decent country, that 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 that's what everything is. Are we are we going to be fundamentally evil or are we going to be fundamentally bad? Taking aside the complication that their founders were at one point in one camp and now in the other for their for their purposes, but um, everything, whether or not we call an end to the pandemic, um, what bills go through, uh, uh, voter ID, it all comes down to: Are we going to are we going to continue to go down the evil path? Um, will that be our destiny, or are we going to be de- a decent place? The stakes are never any less than that. Right now, look. Here's the thing about this bill: it's garbage. I mean, the bill is garbage. 
Uh, Joe Matt, you know, it was it was never going to pass because the only way it passes is if they get rid of the filibuster, right? It is not a budget bill, so Joe Manchin voted for it, which is apparently looked at as a great triumph, so it gets 50 votes. It needs 60 votes to pass cloture. The only way it doesn't pass cloture is if the filibuster is destroyed. And so that's one of the reasons the rhetoric got ratcheted up this way, is that they're trying to make some kind of emotional case to force the filib- to force Democrats to pull the trigger, vote, and have Manchin and Kristen Sinema uh, destroy the filibuster, which which isn't going to happen, and it's particularly not going to happen with this bill because this is not a good bill for this vehicle. Um, we're talking about a bill. I'm just going to read to you from um, a very good uh, the morning email of the, of our friends at the Dispatch, which breaks the bill down into three. Okay, three parts: voting rights, campaign finance, and lawmaker ethics. The first creates a set of federal requirements mandating how states administer their elections, automatically registering eligible citizens to vote, allowing voters to meet voter ID requirements with, quote, a sworn written statement, establishing election day as a national holiday, implementing no-excuse absentee voting, and requiring states to create independent redistricting commissions to curb gerrymandering. Okay, what I just read you, 75% of that is almost certainly unconstitutional. So this is part one of the bill that uh, that that the Supreme Court will almost certainly throw out, or lower courts will throw out, like almost without question. I mean, uh, requiring states to create independent redistricting commissions—that is a violation of the Constitution. Uh, mandating how states administer elections almost certainly a violation of the Constitution. The second part requires super PACs to make their donor list public and establish a six-to-one federal matching program using taxpayer dollars to supplement candidates' war chests. Um, That is almost certainly unconstitutional. Uh, A federal federal program to create matching funds uh, is a form of political... Funds are a form of political speech... Um, the Constitution uh, should not require you or I or you know any any individual to pay for speech they do not support. That will almost certainly be thrown out. So here we have yet the another. Court already established that precedent, and essentially in 1998, Arizona Free Enterprise Club Freedom Club PAC versus Bennett, which right. essentially found the same thing on the state level. Right. Okay. So this would be the federal federal level, which I think is like is a gimme uh, because uh, okay. So and the third would require all presidential and vice presidential candidates to disclose at least ten years of tax returns. That is almost certainly unconstitutional. Can't force people. There is no such thing as a as a national presidential campaign. You cannot force a person to publish their private financial information. I mean, you can pass a law that says you can. Uh, somebody will challenge it, and it will. So we're talking about a bill that is largely unconstitutional, probably in its in its creation. All all of this is a wish list of you know d- democratic. Because we have to go back to its inception. It was it was designed in 2018 as a campaign vehicle. It was not designed as legislation. Right. When Democrats okay. retook, the, retook the House in 2019, they named it HR1 in order to demonstrate that this was their chief set of priorities. But it was a talking point. It was never designed. It never went to the floor in the in the last Congress 
because it was never going to pass in the last Congress. So this gets to the final point of, of this debate, this dispute between Noah and Christine Abe. Here, here's what I'm, what I'm saying. Um, everybody who thinks that Republicans are destroying our democracy through their restriction of voting rights or whatever Trump is, this whole general line of thinking for whom this is an enormously important matter that requires a legislative remedy or legislative remedies. How many more people are there like this? This is 20, this is not an election year. It's 2021. They're going through these motions to get this bill attacked so they can walk around politically saying Republicans hate the franchise and want to trash and they're, 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 they hate democracy. But my sense is that everybody in this country who believes that believes it already and doesn't need this. They can say it anyway. Like, you know, so either they believe it and they really believe if they don't go through this and do what they can to destroy the state bills that they think are destroying the franchise, that either they believe it and that's the Christine point. They believe it and they have walked, they've talked themselves into a kind of apocalyptic conclusion about where we're going unless this bill passes which can't possibly pass or they're they're spending a lot of emotional and political capital on an issue that they've already secured 95% of the political benefit from and that they'll continue to secure it like they don't need to reinforce that people who believe that believe that people who don't believe it or don't vote on it won't vote on it and they, they're basically, it's either a huge waste of time or it's an expression of a kind of ideological frenzy that, uh, I, I don't know, Abe, where, I come, where do you I come, come out of this? I come down uh, firmly on Christine's side. I, I think it is uh, a very sincere ideological frenzy. Um, I think a, a lot of, you know... Um, I think the best way to understand the moment we're in is to is to take people at their word um, on these things. Uh, I think the ones who don't believe it, you can you can spot a mile away. Um, the ones who are just sort of hanging on uh, for for the moment, but um, someone like AOC absolutely believes it, and I think they do think it's life or death for, for the republic, whatever their misunderstanding of what the republic is. Well, and main, meanwhile, the opportunity cost of pushing this over, say, the stalled uh, compromise crime bill that Tim Scott's been trying to cobble together since last summer, when if you look at what many Americans are most concerned about right now, that, I mean, they really are kind of expending, as you said, John, I think they are expending a lot of political capital. And to Noah's point, I think there's a fair number in the Democratic coalition who who do believe, uh, who, are, who are approaching it in, in the way he is. They're not the ones given the microphone for promoting it, right. though, for sure. And meanwhile, people want to know what are the, what's, what's Congress doing about the crime, the, the crime spike? Well, Tim Scott's sitting there still trying to get more Democrats on board, right? Like, what are they doing? Okay, we're going to talk about that. Uh, and and the New York mayor's race, in which that was a, a key a, a key issue. Um, first, let me tell you again about dividendcafe.com, uh, David Bonson's uh, nightly newsletter uh, that that goes into what happened uh, on Wall Street in the markets, the Fed, and politics relating to economics and macroeconomics and financial investment uh, each day. Uh, with a healthy dose of analysis about long-term 
trends. It is uh, among the most illuminating things that will come into your email box uh, every every single day. If you go to DividendCafe.com and sign up for it, produced by the Bonson Group, $3 billion by Coastal Management for uh, Financial Management and Services firm uh, run by David Monson, commentary contributor, friend of the podcast, uh, and uh, and author of, of, of several books, wrote a great piece for us on Elizabeth Warren's um, financial, uh, her, her ideology uh, that I commend to you. Um, and th- this newsletter, I just, I look forward to it ever, as, as we all know, I'm enumerate and an idiot, and, uh, and uh, even I can understand uh, what he is talking about. So that's a really a positive thing for me. And it would be a positive thing for you, even if you aren't enumerate. If you are numerate, it is also very illuminating. So go subscribe to DividendCafe.com from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management business. Okay, uh, New York... Oh. Can I just say, I just one thing for our listeners, if they, they our, our friend Andy Smerick has written a great piece for National Affairs that actually gets at this use in a broader sense of political language, the taking something seriously, not literally, and how that's kind of made a lot of these debates about substance of legislation challenging to have because we don't know whether we're whether it's a con and they actually believe it or if it's something anyway it's it's a great piece you know people interested in in the kind of broader philosophical debate about that should should read it at national affairs great um so the new york city mayor's race um uh eric adams the brooklyn borough president uh one time a new york city uh policeman who started a group in the 90s, a kind of anti-cop group within the police department called 100 Black Men in Law Enforcement Who Care, uh, uh, has uh, about 32% of the vote versus uh, Maya Wiley, uh, Noah's, and uh, this is very upsetting to know and me because uh, we've both been on MSNBC with Maya Wiley, and if we knew that that was a, a springboard uh, to political stardom, hey, we could have uh, run for mayor uh, of New York, uh, but that's where people knew Maya Wiley from. She ended up consolidating, as we say, the progressive lane and getting about 23% of the vote. Um, and so now this is a ranked choice voting thing. So it's sort of like, I don't even want to go into it. Um, it is likely that Adams prevails um, because... What happens now is they 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 start throwing off the lower the candidates with the lowest numbers, adding their and then allocating their numbers to who's in the top thing. And basically, there are now three possible winners. Adams is one. Wiley, who is the far left winger in the race, is is the second. And Catherine Garcia, who ran the city sanitation department and is running as a technocrat as a non-ideological technocrat, is the third. Um, Here's what's interesting about the overall dynamic. Two things. One is that if you add up uh, the candidacies uh, and where they stood ideologically within the context of New York being a very democratic and very liberal city, Adams... Garcia and Andrew Yang, uh, who who basically popped like a balloon and was at 30% in the polls three months ago and ended up getting about 12%. If you add those three up and add Ray McGuire, who is a former uh, Citibank or is a Citibank banker who got about 4%, something like that, 
you get about close to 60% of the electorate, um, maybe a little more. Uh, and what, 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 what distinguished all of those candidacies was that though they did not make a huge point of it, they were effectively anti-progressive. Now, we would look at it as conservatives and say they were all progressive and they all stink and they're all full of crap and they're all full of gender equity and this and that and the other thing. But what they didn't do was lean into it as the key prevailing issue. And Adams took off and won this race because crime became the central issue of the campaign. And while Andrew Yang actually was, I think, in ideal, in practical terms and rhetorical terms, as he talked about it, a more effective exponent of why why New York needed to stop being crazy about crime and start enforcing laws and canceling bail laws and getting homeless off the streets and securing our subways and not letting people go around punch women on the streets and doing something about the mentally ill homeless and all of that. It was Adams' own life story as a cop that led him in a city that polling started suggesting 45 to 50% of the, of the electorate in the democratic primary said crime was their number one concern uh, led him into this fairly commanding victory. uh, Even though it's a ranked choice voting thing, he's 10 point nine and a half points up on his nearest rival in a field, you know, in which five or six people got more than 5% of the vote. That is, that's a pretty good number. And and if you add him to Yang, because Yang, that was sort of his major issue also, you get about 45% of the vote. So what does this tell us? It tells us crime is very do – not, do not kid yourself, Joe Biden. Do not kid yourself, Democrats. Crime is going to be the number one issue in the United States in about a year if – something doesn't start going in a different direction because it's the number one issue in New York City. And uh, p- what what they want to talk about, what people like, is how, how to pay for public housing, how to give people housing, you know, all of that. They are kidding so- themselves, <clears throat> not as a result of New York City's voting, but Buffalo. Buffalo has become the proof of concept here because a Working Families Party candidate <clears throat> defeated a more centrist candidate in Buffalo, even though they've experienced a 90% rise in violent crime. So the issue is it it cuts a bunch of different ways. You can't really make a determinative judgment based on New York City's results. The turnout in Buffalo, in the Democratic primary in Buffalo, the turnout was 7%. So this raises another interesting issue about progressive success within the Democratic Party. AOC heralded the rise of the new aggressive progressive left becoming power brokers in the Democratic Party, correct? She won a primary in 2018 against Joe Crowley, a leading figure in the Democratic Party in the House, by getting 15,000 votes to Crowley's 10,000 votes. Go look at the numbers of the Buffalo mayor's race. The Buffalo the primary numbers are something like the the candidate who won, whose name I can't even remember, got like fourteen thousand votes or something. It's it's crazy. It's a city of two hundred and sixty thousand people. Talk about like low turnout 
This is low turnout like crazy. Yes. So if you get low turnout like crazy and you get moron Democrats who don't understand what is coming their way because at least there's somebody who has an issue to run on, the progressives can really, really do do well. But um, I, this, ele- this is an election. It's not a huge turnout. It'll be about 900,000 people in New York. There are 5 million registered voters in New York City, 3.5 million registered Democrats. 900,000 of them will, when, once all the absentee ballots are counted, will have turned out. That's that's uh, better than 2013 when de Blasio won the primary, when 700,000 people turned out. And uh, they didn't vote. They all voted progressive because that's like saying voting in a Republican primary for president, you know, only the people who voted for Trump were conservative. First of all, they probably weren't so conservative. And second of all, everybody was a conservative. So everybody is sort of a progressive. The question is, where's the stress? Is the stress on defunding the police? Or is it, I want a cop as mayor? That seems to be how Adams did it. In a, in a real turnout election. Again, not right. a great turnout, but not Buffalo, not 7%. But that's why I think it'll be really interesting to see what Joe Biden says this afternoon. He and Merrick Garland are, are going to, um, they're having a meeting with what they, the so-called stakeholders in crime. I don't know what crime stakeholder people who, they, <laughs> they haven't published a list, but that'll be interesting to see. But then they're going to have a, you know, kind of discussion about it. And I would, my, my suspicion is it's going to all be about gun violence and it's all going to be about gun control. And there's going to be very little thought or rhetoric spared for the experience, the everyday experience of people living, not just in cities like New York and LA and DC and Chicago, but in smaller cities where the homicide spike, including places like Buffalo, smaller cities where the homicide and crime spike is significant and where it's felt on a daily basis by people in neighborhoods where that didn't used to be the case very recently. So he needs to speak to those concerns because the defund the police movement is the sort of overarching um, theme still on the left. There hasn't, despite the moderate Democrats, please for for their fellow uh, progressives to stop talking about it so much. It has been the case. And the only thing they've done is maybe stop saying all cops are bastards and instead saying, well, the real problem are the root causes. It's all about equity. It's about racial equity. We have to give more money to, as you said, John, to housing, to education. That's what I'm hearing them say now. That's not going to solve the problem of violent crime. I'm sorry. Maybe it will. Hopefully it will two generations hence. But right now there are violent people on the streets killing other people. That is what they should be talking about. So, you know, uh, yesterday... Um, with uh, Jim Meggs, we spent some time talking about um, a potential backlash to uh, U.S. COVID policy and our approach to uh, the lab leak hypothesis and the suppression of of the hypothesis and and various other things. Um, And that we wouldn't be able to see the form that the backlash takes and whatnot. Um, I think we are undoubtedly already living through a backlash to, to some of what went on already uh, more than a year ago now at this point, right? Um, and that is this, this pro-police, um, anti-crime opinion that is um, definitely gaining strength in the country, along with um, the stuff that we've talked about uh, earlier, uh, or, or last week, rather, um, the, the, the move against critical race theory uh, teaching by parents. Um, the, there is a backlash of sorts that we are are already in, and it is interesting um, 
Right. And it's, I think, healthy. Well, you know, what we hear is that Biden's going to stress guns, right? And the problem with guns. And what's interesting about New York City as the as this uh, uh, leading edge in the crime wave, just as it was the leading edge in the in the end of the crime wave 30 years ago, um, is New York City has a, a extraordinarily restrictive gun laws. And um, the things that are terrifying people about what is going on in the social disorder in New York City, I mean, there are these horrible stories about little kids getting shot or getting caught in crossfires of, of shootings. But it's not that. People are slashing each other with knives. People are, people, there's a lot of knife stuff going on on subway platforms, on trains, what people walking down the street, people getting sucker punched, stuff that isn't gun involved. And for reasons that I think are interesting, maybe we've gotten so inured to gun violence that knife violence is actually more terrifying than gun violence, even though it is by definition, you know, it's less likely to be instantly deadly, um, you know, than, than, than being shot with a bullet. Um, but New York City proves that, A, you can have restrictive gun laws, and B, that you can freak the public out with violent crime that isn't gun-related. And gun-related crime, as we've known for 30 years, a lot of gun-related crime is criminal. That is, it's criminal on criminal. It's gang stuff. It's, you know, it's it's turf stuff and, and all of that. And that has a different valence than this question of whether or not you're walking down the street and somebody who was walking toward you muttering to themselves is going to haul off and punch your grandmother in the face. Well, right, which but, changes the whole feeling of what it is to be alive and around and about in a in a you know in a in a living in a living organism like a city. Well, the ra- the randomness of those kinds of attacks, I agree, it ha- it spawns more fear and anxiety about going about your day to day life, and that is also happening in other cities too. But to the gang violence point, you're right. Like the turf battles and the and the sort of dignity fights that go on. You know, somebody has a beef with someone else. In D.C., it's over. Like they have these rap battles and then people start calling each other out on social media and then someone goes, drives by and shoots at someone else. Um, they're happening constantly. But the turf is expanding. And that's where you get more innocent people caught in the crossfire, not just in on the two blocks where everyone knows there's drug dealing going on, but in the uh, outer lying neighborhoods around there. And that's because we've... That is where the defund the police comes in because they've pulled those gun control units and those narcotics units away from those neighborhoods. And those people are no longer protected. You know, I just want to say what's interesting is something that we've pointed out um, with um, all the incidents of cops being caught on video um, acting in ways that could be or are um, too aggressive. Um, and how this sort of wouldn't have happened. We, the, the, it wouldn't have been an issue in the public eye to the same to this extent. Thirty years ago, twenty years ago, before everyone was walking around uh, with a with a sophisticated uh, video camera in their phone. This goes the other way too. A lot of crime now is caught on video and goes out on the internet and goes out on Twitter accounts and um, citizen type apps. Um, and so, so. It's you know, two can play at this game. Not that it's a game necessarily, but but it but it, it's having the the other effect as well. 
Here's the other important point here. So Adams has run as the guy. He'll bring his gun into church with him, right? And then, you know, my Wiley said, we don't need, we don't need more guns. Like the mayor carrying a gun is the same as, you know, a gangbanger carrying a gun. Like that was a pretty dumb thing to say. Uh, but the rubber meets the road. He becomes mayor. And then, and he says, we have to get the guns off the streets. So what is the least, what is the most controversial, least popular program among progressives and liberals in New York in terms of crime fighting and police action? Stop and frisk. Stop and frisk. It's evil. 500,000 people were stopped and frisked, and it's a terrible thing. So, you know, they only get 3% of people actually end up having a gun, and it's a terrible thing, and blah, blah, blah. How else are you going to get guns off the streets except by um, seizing them from people who have them and they're unlicensed? Stop and Frisk is the only program that we know of that has actually lowered the number of gun-carrying people on the streets. So Eric Adams is going to become mayor. He's against Stop and Frisk. Everybody's against Stop and Frisk. How is he going to lower the number of guns on New York City streets? How is he going to limit the amount of gun violence on, or, or any kind of violence on New York City streets? The rubber meets the road. He can say whatever he wants to say and run however he wants to run and not sound like a psychotic person who, doesn't, who wants the cops to go away and get himself elected. And then he's the mayor. And those stats don't go anywhere. The numbers... They, you can fudge them, you can fool around with them a little bit, but they are not going to lie. Number of emergency room admissions from stabbings and gunshots are not going to go down. Uh, the number of this, number that, you like, he is going to have to do things to fulfill his campaign promises. And this is where it's time to talk about Rudy Giuliani a little bit, because whatever you think about Rudy now... And whatever people now think, oh, yeah, Disneyfied New York City and blah, blah, blah. The thing that was interesting about Giuliani is he became mayor in 19, early 1994. And he said, we're not going to stand for this and all of that. And that wasn't the all of it. The entire liberal establishment in the city came after him, hammer and tongs. They said he was a racist. They said he was a monster. They said that he was encouraging acts of terrorist violence against you know, innocent victims. They said that he hated speech because he didn't like porn shops. They came at him relentlessly. The New York Times editorial page, every person, body of liberal opinion in New York acted like he was a monster and a fascist. And Rudy didn't care. Or he took perverse energy from his standing against the New York Times and against conventional liberal opinion. Not like Trump, because Rudy had a very determined very specific agenda in mind, and he knew what he had to do to secure what it was that he wanted to secure to be a successful mayor, and it was wildly more successful than even he could possibly have anticipated. But the point is that he had some weird armor against liberal opinion, and that he it gave him energy, and he went at it every day. Eric Adams is not going to have that. I, we don't know what Eric Adams is going to have. But you can't just say, I'm a cop, I'm against crime, watch out, bad guys, I'm coming for you. Because when you 
tell your department, your police department, they have to be more more aggressive. Maybe they'll be more aggressive. And then you know what? There's going to be some body cam footage that's not going to look very good. And you know what you have to do? You have to stand by your cop. You have to say he was in a life-threatening situation and he is there on the line every day protecting you and ordinary people and not care that the New York Times editorial is going to insult you. You have to not care or perversely think that's a sign that I am doing the right thing. And that's where liberals getting right on crime is only is they can start getting right rhetorically on crime. But if they don't do things that bring the crime numbers down, that is going to what Abe was talking about, about the backlash. That's where it really starts going crazy. That's where people say, Oh, you're paying lip service. Oh, you think crime is so terrible. What have you done? Right? Last month there were 220 murders. This month there are 230 murders. You stink. You know? I mean, there's not you you got to you got to show, you got to have results and their policies, their rhetoric may start snapping more in line. Their policies are going to retard their ability to have progress. Well, and that, again, like at the federal level, there's less that can be done um, here because mo- many of these are obviously local, locally decided issues. But there could be some signaling from Biden if he chose to make the signal. He spent a lot of his time on the campaign trail distancing himself from his signature crime legislation in 1994, talking about all the ways it was it had gone bad. And I did I end up not liking this. Stop and frisk was among that. a lot of the stuff that actually helped is credited with with helping bring crime rates down, he has disavowed. So how is he going to talk about crime now? I, I mean, he's in a very it's, he's in a very difficult political position, given his coalition. Um, but it has to happen. So there, he, there is an opportunity here for him to signal that to give per, the permission structures, we like to say, to people like the new mayor of New York City to say, look, you know, we've tried all this stuff. We, we're aware of the equity issues. We're aware of, you know, uh, cops who go too far. But we have this practical problem on the ground that needs to be solved, and here, here's what we're going to do. I don't have much confidence he's going to do that, but right. just putting that out there. And, you know, uh, Abe mentioned uh, a part of the backlash being a backlash to uh, uh, critical race theory. And, you know, critical race theory, as this backlash indicates, is sweeping through American higher education. At Wake Forest University, for example, the Department of Mathematics and Statistics has implemented, quote, anti-racist math, unquote, coursework. In spring 2021, the University of New Hampshire began offering a class on racism in science, and the University of Pittsburgh's medical school has even added a vow against system racism to the 2,500-year-old Hippocratic Oath. It's happening at universities throughout America and across curricula, from history to architecture, from medicine to economics. Critical race theory, the idea that America is an inherently racist country and that each American must be reprogrammed to dispel his or her intrinsic racism, is opposed by an overwhelming majority of Americans and yet leaders in higher education, from prestigious Ivy League campuses to state schools in the Deep South, continue to impose this radical ideology on students and faculty alike. Founded by a Cornell Law professor, criticalrace.org is the definitive resource for students, parents, alumni, university donors, and all Americans concerned about the continued creep of critical race theory in higher education. The investigative journalists at Legal Insurrection Foundation provide you with the latest updates on how individual schools are implementing critical race training, how local, state, and federal governments are getting involved, and how some parents and states are fighting back. 
has stopped this toxic and un-American ideology. We must be diligent. Criticalrace.org is the resource you need to stay informed about this assault on higher education in America. Don't delay. Visit criticalrace.org today. That's criticalrace.org. Um, so, uh, what else should we? What else? What else can we talk about? We had the, we had crime. We got the mayor's race. We got the, uh, I don't know. Uh, well, Fauci, I just do you want to do want to insult I, Fauci? No. I just have one more. I mean, it's been fifty-two minutes, and we haven't insulted Fauci yet. Go, go ahead, Abe. Sorry. I just this is just a, a one more thought on the crime thing about when the rhetoric might switch to um, uh, policy among Democrats. There could be, and this happens sometimes, a case that sort of um, breaks the back on this thing. You know, there could be this some horrific, highly publicized, violent crime could happen this summer. It could be a, a string of them or something. The kind of thing where the whole country freaks out the way they do about the gun issue when there is like uh, a mass shooting in a school, you know, um, that's that's when the gun issue, when the valence takes off. And I think there, there could be something. Um, I hope not, obviously, but there could be, you know, some some sort of huge, grotesque crime incident that that becomes emblematic of how much ground we have lost and, and how dire the situation becomes. And that's when people will 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 change their opinions overnight and, and actually talk about legislation that, that they wouldn't well, have. Yeah. Before. And that's also where the the kind of uh, equity mantra of, well, the real problem here are the root causes of poverty and education. That's where those people stop hearing that they stop accepting that as right. reasonable when there's an immediate threat. Right. And that is that is the story of crime in the in the United States always. And you could say it's the story of the last two years because of the George Floyd tape. I mean, uh, in reverse, um, it's uh, Bernie right. gets on the subway. It's uh, Jennifer Chambers exactly. getting, in New York terms, because I'll focus be parochial. It's Jennifer Chambers getting murdered in Central Park by a uh, Jennifer. Um, I'm sorry, Jennifer Levin, Levin getting murdered yeah. by Ro- Robert Chambers in, in, in Central Park. Yeah, there are these uh, Kitty Genovese screaming and nobody right. coming to help her. The, that is the uh, emblematic moments. Uh, the Manson family, whatever. There are these emblematic moments that where you say things have gotten out of control and something has to happen. And people say, "Well, what are you going to do? We we don't. There's nothing to be done. You know, we don't know how to fix it." We it it's you know things have gone too far or you know we're we're we really need to deal with the root causes or whatever and people are like say that one more time like just go <laughs> ahead just keep saying that as I move further and further and further to the right like that's that's part of the and then of course you have the retrospective or retroactive thing where it's like okay we don't like Rudy Giuliani anymore because he got too Trumpy and then he said ridiculous things about the election and all of that and you know what. All of New York City's politics from 1993 onward were the result of systemic racism, and and it, and it was and it was just terrible. Uh, meanwhile, according to some calculations, there are something like 25 to 50 thousand more people alive today than would have been alive otherwise had the policies not changed in the 1990s when Rudy Giuliani became mayor. So which, pick your, choose your adventure, you know? Choose your lane, choose your adventure. Um, 
I just wanted to say one thing, but uh, let me let me read the last ad, and then I'm going to bring up something uh, in, in relation to uh, insulting Fauci, because uh, as I said, we haven't done it in a while, or at least in the last 20 minutes. Um, uh, look, uh, you, you probably upgraded a few things around the house after being stuck inside this year, uh, but now it's time to turn your yard into a paradise with fastgrowingtrees.com. Uh Forget, skip the big box stores. Head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com. Choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area. Delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system, ready to explode with new growth. There's a better way to buy trees and shrubs and plants for your home and yard, fastgrowingtrees.com. Join 1 million satisfied gardeners who have used it, plus its 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. And now, through July 31st, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 15% off. That's 15% off, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. Um, so, uh, uh, Fauci has come out as a Scott Gottlieb and other, you know, pangendra of the pandemic to say, yes, there is a threat from the Delta var- variant in the United States. Uh, apparently, new cases have gone from 1% being the result of the Delta variant like three weeks ago to maybe being 20% today. Um, and the threat is entirely among the unvaccinated. That's the key thing is that no one is threatened by the variant. By this variant, if you're vaccinated, it has not more than 90% efficacy against the uh, the vaccines we've been taking. Have more than 90% efficacy against against the Delta variant. We are not at risk, but the variant can sponsor another variant and all of that. And da, 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 and then we can move into the winter. And you know, the winter could be bad, and then the, there could be another outbreak. Among and the outbreak will be among the unvaccinated, and if it really, really aggressively mutates, then maybe it could escape the efficacy of the of the mRNA vaccines and and get us all sick. So um, I've been going through this for weeks about saying nasty things about the unvaccinated and how they're stupid and all of that, and then people write us and say it's not fair and why are you if you're not at risk, blah blah blah. And I I, I had this thought, and the thought as most of my thoughts are, comes directly from the Godfather. Because most of my thinking, most of my understanding of the world comes directly from the God, not the Godfather part two, the Godfather, the greatest movie ever made, the greatest work of popular art ever created in the United States, the Godfather. And it's this. Don Corleone is sitting with the five families at the table uh, trying to figure out what is what is going on and he says, you know, how did we ever get to such a pass? Uh, Tatalia lost a son. I've lost a son. Sonny was just killed at the causeway. And uh, and uh, Michael uh, shot his father's assassin and killed him in a restaurant and has now fled, right? He's, <clears throat> he's fled to Italy, to Sicily. And he says, you know, I want my son to come back. Uh, and I, we need to make peace. Everybody's got to make peace. So we got to make peace. But he says, I'm a superstitious man. If my son should come home, if he should, uh, if he should hang himself in his, um, 
you know, if he should, uh, this should happen, if he should hang himself in his own uh, jail cell. And then I can't remember the other examples he gives. You know, if he should step on a nail, uh, then I am going to blame some of these people in this room and that I will not forgive. And this is what I'm going to say. Hmm. I want peace. I want peace between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. I want peace on the right among people who have seemed to have decided not to. But if we get to October or November and there's a huge spike and uh, there's a spike that's the result of uh, the unvaccinated getting sick and there are new variants that are much more aggressive and they evade the mRNA uh, or, or even if it looks like that and it empowers Andrew Cuomo, among other people, to announce that there has to be another lockdown or two or shutting down of this or making or schools shutting down or whatever. Uh, then uh, that I will not forgive. And I don't care that they're fascists and they want to impose terrible things and it's their fault and they're the ones who are going to want to shut school. If there's a surge later this year that empowers the lockdown fanatics, I will blame some of the people (laughs) who are listening to this podcast and that I will not forgive. Well, that's a forgivable impulse, but it's entirely the responsibility and fault of policymakers for leaning into extraordinary interventions that are no longer justified. According to CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, quote, there's nearly, they, they are nearly hundred percent effective. The vaccines against severe disease and death, meaning nearly every death due to COVID-19 is particularly tragic because nearly every death among adults due to COVID-19 is entirely preventable. In lay terms, the crisis is over. If every death associated with this is preventable, it exists along the same spectrum as your decision to go swimming, your decision to go driving, your decision to eat raw shellfish. It is a risk that you accept that doesn't require demand or necessitate any sort of extraordinary intervention public policy-wise or a mitigating effort on your part, save for just like wearing a seatbelt when you get in a car, getting vaccinated. Your decision not to do that is not a public policy matter. It's a personal responsibility matter. So while I share your antipathy for these people, it's not their fault that your life is getting shut down. Okay, but I'm creating a new scenario. I'm creating a scenario where there are enough people who are unvaccinated to create, to keep alive the Delta variant long enough and widespread enough for it to mutate into a condition that makes the mRNA vaccines ineffective, thus empowering the lockdown people to lock us down again. Under the Without that scenario that I'm laying out, my Don Corleone speech uh, will never, does not have to be delivered, did not, you know, will, will be null and void. But I'm, I'm, I'm just laying this out because that is the worst case scenario, is that because people are not getting vaccinated, <clears throat> they are keeping alive the possibility of the virus mutating in a dangerous direction that will interfere with or harm the vaccination regime that has had such incredible success. Uh, and but if that were to happen, it would, it would also probably originate abroad, right? And well, if, it, right. If, it evades, <laughs> if it evades vaccines, then it evades everybody's vaccine. So it's not... So you could... 
if it happens, it's more likely originating overseas and then it comes here and then it wouldn't matter whether you're vaccinated or not. So it's not really the fault of our unvaccinated population, but the very the the availability of vaccines globally. No, it's the fault of our unvaccinated population because they're not vaccinated and therefore they're no, you see what I'm saying? It originates here. Right. Well, but I mean, oh, fine. But we're, you're you're presuming that it doesn't originate here. You're presuming that it originates abroad, and the the scenario that I'm laying out presumes that it either originates here or it finds a it finds a healthy host here, uh, because of the number of unvaccinated people. I don't know, Abe. And the the worst part about it is that should that happen, and I, by the way, I don't think that's going to happen. But should it happen, uh, the vaccine, the anti-vaxxers will say, "See, See? told 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 you told you we you didn't need to get the vaccine. Didn't work." Anyway, I just thought it was time for us to say uh, something. Uh, we didn't even in, in, in insult Fauci, but it was time to quote The Godfather because it's I, I, it's been a while, uh, and The Godfather should be quoted on an hourly basis because it is the font of of all wisdom, including that you should put sugar in your spaghetti sauce, which is a really uh, very important. That's Clemenza's tip. Uh, we can go into many other many other details about uh, who who the godfather's uh, consigliere was Jenko, stuff like that but th- that th- we're now getting into like very serious nerd quiz territory and that means we gotta go uh we've been doing this for more than an hour we'll talk to you tomorrow for abe christina noah i'm john pod keep the candle burning <laughs>